You're listening to Cloud9, where Bahaiteachings.org interviews artists from around the globe to learn about what inspires, uplifts, and motivates them to make a positive contribution to the world. My name is Shadi Talui Wallace. Welcome to Cloud9. You're tuning in to a four-part series dedicated to exploring the social and spiritual implications of Confederate and colonial monuments here in North America and around the world. Our guest in this, the fourth and final episode of the series, is Brooklyn-based writer, editor, and creative producer Anissa Tavangar, who works at the intersection of art, justice, and spirituality. To help guide this conversation, I've drawn insights and assistance from the writings and teachings of the Baha'i Faith, as well as conversations from previous episodes. So to recap, in the first episode, we spoke with Dr. Derek Smith about the historical context surrounding Confederate monuments in America. We explored the elements of truth behind the current issues at hand, reconciling unconditional love over hate and America's spiritual destiny to influence the world. We also talked about what this means for the future of memorialization and the role of individuals, communities, and institutions to navigate the conversations surrounding these monuments. In the second episode, we spoke with Dr. Laylee Mapayan, about the implications of monuments on Black communities and on the psyche of people of African descent in America. Together, we explored the psychological impact that Confederate monuments have had on generations of African Americans. We discussed the teachings on justice of Baha'u'llah, the prophet founder of the Baha'i Faith, and whether these monuments suppress our collective ability to walk towards justice. We also explored how the limited representation within these monuments contributes to fragmentation and disunity, and how the Baha'i Faith influenced Dr. Mapayan while she was growing up as a mixed-race woman of color in the South. In the third episode, we spoke with Dr. Justin DeLeon about the implications of these monuments on people of indigenous descent in America. He broadened the conversation to include mascots and attempts to fix and characterize antiquated images of Indigenous people. We spoke about how this impacts how Indigenous people tell their own stories and how they see themselves, the difference between memory and history, and how this influences how Indigenous people imagine their future. We also talked about the pitfalls of Western construct of memorialization and how indigenous ceremonies such as enactments could offer us a more inclusive way to memorialize, removed from an ideology or individual in the future. If you haven't yet, I suggest you listen to those first, but today we've invited Anissa to speak with us about memorialization as public works of art and how the Baha'i Faith offers us a blueprint, a framework for how we as individuals and artists, communities and governments and institutions can memorialize in the future. Anissa, a warm welcome to Cloud9. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really um, honored to be part of this really wonderful group of people. And we're really honored to have you. Thank you so much for joining us. Could you start by telling us a bit about yourself, in particular your educational background and research, and what might be relevant for us in this conversation regarding monuments and memorialization? Sure. 
Well, um, academically, my background is in the intersection of, of art history and Africana studies. So looking at art and race, art and justice. I went to Barnard College at Columbia University where I wrote my thesis on the presentation of African art at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City, which is housed in the Rockefeller wing and is really rooted in these ideas of primitivism and colonialism and imperialism. So with that work, it was really a, a look at, at history and at future um, and thinking about sort of the, the role of the past in shaping how we will continue to see works of art as our sort of collective understanding of art and of cultures that might be unlike our own are, are really rapidly changing and dramatically changing. And then professionally, um, I currently work for an organization called Four Freedoms that works at the intersection of fine art and civic engagement. So at Four Freedoms, we're really focused on using fine art and using the voices of artists to engage in public discourse. Um, and a lot of what we do also is, you know, around public art and around publicly accessible art. So um, we do a lot of public installations. We do uh, billboards across the country, really about bringing the voices of artists into these conversations. And through that, also inviting communities into these conversations. Um, and our concern is, is much more with, with asking questions and provoking thought than with providing any kind of answer. Wonderful. I'm really grateful for your presence here today. And also, you sound like the perfect person to help us navigate this conversation and bring this uh, four-part series to a close and hopefully offer opportunities for our listeners to continue the conversation in their own lives in the future. So I want to start off with a couple clarifying questions. What is public art? Mm -hmm. So public art is a work of art that is not housed within the walls of a museum, is not confined to um, some kind of a private space or a space that requires, you know, you don't have to walk through a door to see it. It's a work of art that is accessible, whether it's in a park or uh, at some kind of a monument. Um, it is typically something that is outdoors. Um, but the idea of public art is that it is some kind of object that is integrated into a community space. And another clarifying question, is there a difference between monuments and memorials? I think there's a lot of crossover between a monument and a, and a memorial. Um, I would say, in my own mind, when thinking about these two terms, a monument strikes me as something that might be a little bit more um, artful. Um and a memorial also signifies like a relationship with death as well, whereas a monument might not necessarily have that same kind of a tone. Um, but I do think there's a lot of crossover. And I think also as our understanding of these, of these ideas change and our understanding of history changes, perhaps those definitions will also become um, more distinct. Thanks for those clarifications. Now, in the first episode with Dr. Derek Smith, we spoke about how these Confederate and colonial monuments are often considered public forms of art. They've stood on pedestals in central and public spaces for decades, and in the case of colonial monuments, for centuries. They're often protected by law and maintained through public funding. To many, they represent the past, a part of our collective history, and their removal has been argued as an erasure of that history. However, more recently, we've also seen people standing together in opposition to these monuments, what they symbolize and what they stand for. They're rallying together, calling for the removal of these monuments. 
We've seen decapitated, spray-painted um, monuments that have been thrown into rivers, reimagined by artists and removed from various public spaces. These events have once again brought to the surface questions surrounding the validity of these monuments as public forms of art and the racist individuals and ideologies they represent. So my question to you, Anissa, is how does this movement uh, speak to our current spiritual reality, this movement of wanting to remove these monuments that represent these specific ideologies? How does it speak to our current spiritual reality? Yeah. Well, I think coming to truth is often a very uncomfortable process, especially if, if these are truths that we have denied for a really long time. And of course, you know, truth can be multifaceted. Truth doesn't necessarily exist as a singular point. But I, but I do think that truth will often, even if it's not, you know, singular, is pointing in a certain direction. And that's the the direction of, of justice and equality and equity and oneness. And when I see calls for certain monuments uh, to be taken down, or I see monuments being uh, vandalized, or maybe we can say monuments be transformed by communities, it is a it's a really powerful signifier that there is like a urgent need for change to the point that people will not wait anymore. It also signifies, you know, while we have seen this happen in kind of a wave um, in recent months, that this has been, you know, under the surface for quite a while, because I don't think that this level of energy would be, um, would sort of spring forth without quite a bit of, t bit of time to percolate and develop. To me, it speaks to, you know, on one hand, deep sadness and disappointment, but on the other time, on the other hand, a true desire for action, which, I, which is what is so inspiring from my perspective, is that people really feel moved to create tangible change, visible change, that they are also frustrated by the the visual symbols that surround them every single day which are often visual symbols of violence and dominance and inequality and injustice um, that do not reflect the spiritual qualities that we are called to and how do you think this movement speaks to the way that we see public art in society and the ways we memorialize moving into the future mm -hmm. i think oftentimes we we see you know, there are certain types of things that, that communicate um, authority. So, you know, a marble or bronze statue anywhere will communicate some kind of authority. And we assume that this object um, is correct for whatever reason. But that's not the case. We also have to consider that, you know, every every work of art that exists in both in how it exists and where it exists was created through a series of choices and a series of decisions by flawed human beings, because we are all flawed. Um, so when we look at, you know, the art that, that exists around us, whether it's these monuments, whether it's works of public art, whether it's the way things are arranged in a museum, um, it's, it's also important as a viewer to approach that with the, with the understanding that everything you see um, was set in its context through a series of decisions. And it's important to weigh whether those decisions were made out of a love for humanity or a love for self or a lust for power or, you know, these other sort of corrupting um, forces that we see around us. 
Mm-hmm. Just earlier, you mentioned the role of of truth in in speaking to this um, our current spiritual reality. So I want to return to that and also return to this idea of the three protagonists, which we explored in the first episode with Dr. Smith. So this is looking at the role of the individual, the community, and its institutions. So for a moment, I just want to reflect on the individual's role and the Baha'i perspective. Um, and principle of independent investigation of truth. The eldest son of Baha'u'llah, whose name is Abdu'l-Baha, talks about how each and every human is endowed with the power of reason, which enables them to investigate reality. He said that God has not intended man to blindly imitate his fathers and ancestors. He must not be an imitator or a blind follower of any soul. He must not rely implicitly upon the opinion of any man without investigation. Rather, each soul must seek intelligently and independently, arriving at a real conclusion and bound only by that reality. I know that... So I know this episode is focused on the future, but just for a moment, I want to look at the past and reflect on the Confederate and colonial monuments that are still standing today. What are some questions that we can equip ourselves with to begin our own personal investigation of the truth surrounding these monuments? Yeah, I mean, immediately we can ask, what is it? What are we looking at? Whose story does it tell? You know, where is this thing? Where is this object presented? Who typically will see this this work? Um, depending on what city you're in, which part of the city you're in, you know, what kind of an environment in this part of a, of a city or a town or wherever you are is it? Um, well, you know, who's that population? When was it erected? And then even paying attention to certain visual symbols. So, if it's a if it's a person, if it's a figure. Is the figure, you know, raised high above you? Is the figure larger than life? Because those, both of those are tools that are used to convey dominance and authority. You know, are there, is there text accompanied with it? What does the text say? Whose perspective is the text written from? If the text is even, if it feels very dry and detached, well, what are the details that it's leaving out? What's the emotion that it is neglecting to include? Um, even if it just sort of, it seems to state quote unquote facts, um, how might those be misleading? What do you feel when you approach it? Because, you know, in in the process of viewing a work of art, whether it's, you know, a monument or, or another kind of work of public art, your feelings as a viewer are half of the half of the equation. You know, on the one hand, it's what what the artist or the institution is intended for you to experience, but your experience is also um, you know, a very valid part of that process. Um, I would also encourage, you know, walk, you know, walk around the object, like take a sort of 360 walk if you can, and notice how at different angles, a sculpture or a monument might change and how you, you know, from, from these different angles and perspectives, because oftentimes, you know, there, there are pieces that we are, uh, that we take for granted in objects that, that really do mean a lot, um, in terms of the way things are placed or the way people are arranged, if there's multiple people, the way people are arranged with each other, if one person is in front, if one person is taller, if one person, you know, is given more more space than another. These are all choices that have been made by 
whoever created this object. Those are really interesting points. Thank you. So how does this investigation extend into the role of the other two protagonists, the community and its institutions? Well, I think, you know, a community has collective memory. It has, you know, this sort of sense of what happened in this place and how does the group of people choose to um, communicate it. And so I think the community uh, has a responsibility to the way it treats and fosters the education of its members. It, it is the responsibility of a community to ensure that people feel cared for and people feel included and people feel listened to. I think it's also the responsibility of a community to foster healing when it's necessary. Because oftentimes, you know, if, if a if a monument or a memorial or whatever it is, is, is commemorating something that was violent, um, whether physically or emotionally, um, healing is a process that cannot be skipped over. And then for an institution, again, it's about like the way that they are presenting a message. You know, oftentimes what's, what's challenging is that as people cycle through institutions, we might feel that a decision made before us can't be changed or a decision made before us is not our place to, to disrupt. So it's also about creating the conditions for assessment and creating conditions for for constant um, evaluation and reflection. Because oftentimes, you know, as an individual existing within an institution, it might feel very intimidating to probe and question why things were, were established the way that they were. So looking into the future, what are some ways that you believe these three protagonists can work collectively to navigate the conversations surrounding memorialization. Mm-hmm. Have you seen examples of this in your work at For Freedoms, where institutions or governments have engaged individuals and communities in a constructive process in order to work mm-hmm. towards truth? The the first thing that comes to my mind is honesty, because it's what I have observed on the negative side is that institutions will be so um kind of desperate to preserve their name and and so uh focused on maintaining the power and the authority that they hold that they will deny the reality of the context of what exists within them so you know i think about my my academic research and the sort of the reality that you know in a lot of museums that have collections of of objects that were stolen from from colonized uh, states and and colonized communities is that they will deny the the origins of where objects came from. They will ignore the primitivist uh, settings with which they present things. Um, and the same is true with these you know with Confederate monuments that communities and institutions will deny that you know, these objects were erected during the reconstruction era, that they were that, you know, that they were funded and put up by groups that were focused on intimidating black communities. Um, and when you deny the the truth and the history of these things, well, then you can't move forward and you can't understand why you need to move forward and the importance of it. Um, so that is the, that's the first thing that comes to mind when thinking about how to move forward in the future. Um, also because if you really can't move forward, if, if the foundations of what you have are all rotted through, if the foundations of what you're trying to build on are built on racism and 
inequality and injustice and and death and you know these really stark imbalances it's not something that is going to be sustainable because probably there's a voice that you're silencing there's a group that you're ignoring there's a truth that you are denying and if you really want to move forward in a way that is thorough it's impossible if you don't confront the truth and we know also in the baha'i writings it says that truthfulness is the foundation of all human virtues so if truth like truthfulness needs to be that foundation not the racism not the denial not the you know inequality but truthfulness really has to be the foundation of how you are confronting the reality of the past and moving forward into the future and the other thing that really strikes me is this notion of participation and widening participation um in in Baha'i processes of social action, there is this, this idea that instead of focusing ourselves on certain goals and numbers and outcomes, we should instead uh, focus our efforts on raising levels of participation and raising uh, capacity, individual capacity for action and collective capacities for action. So if our, if, you know, in, if in art making, if in uh, you know, memory and memorializing. Our concern is just with, you know, having a statue that fills the spot where an old statue was, or if I, our concern is just, you know, putting something up and saying we did it, as opposed to talking to the community, understanding the history, and really ensuring that we feel listened to, it's going to be insufficient. But if, if our concern is really about raising capacity, whether that's the creative capacity of the community, the sort of the educational capacity of a community, our focus on justice, whatever it might be, we're going to be so much better if we if we are considering those factors. And I think that's that also, you know, going back to this notion of three, three protagonists, like that's also how the three protagonists need to be interacting with one another, you know, really considering how does this thing support a community? How does it help a community, whether it's the people who are impacted by whatever the monument is memorializing, or it's the people who are probably going to be viewing this thing most often, those strike me as as these important things moving forward in the future. And, and some of that too, is looking at the artists that are creating works themselves as well. Because, you know, I, as I kind of said earlier, every thing is created through a series of decisions, but our decisions are shaped by our biases and our experiences. So when we widen the circle of who is participating in that decision-making process, then we also, you know, widen the creative contributions mm -hmm. of what we are able to benefit from. You also spoke about building capacity in these three protagonists, and I was reflecting on the role of consultation in the Baha'i teachings. And how members, there's a quote by Abdu'l-Baha, the son of Baha'u'llah, where he says, the members thereof must take counsel together in such wise that no occasion for ill feeling or discord may arise. And later on, he says, the shining spark of truth cometh forth only after the clash of differing opinions. So just reflecting on, on, on our developing our own capacity as these three protagonists to consult and looking for that spark of truth when, because obviously memory and truth would vary between individuals and um, their own lived experiences. So this idea of coming together and opening up a very constructive um, space for consultation is also really critical and it's important for all of us to mm -hmm. build that capacity. That, it kind of brings to mind, I don't know if people have seen in 
Richmond, Virginia, there's this monument to Robert E. Lee, who's the president of the Confederacy, the leader of the Confederate Army, that has become completely covered in graffiti, really, really transformed through the actions of many. And and often also the space is used, but there's a very large pedestal lifting up this, this statue of him on a horse. And on the pedestal, they will people will often project um, messages of community care and support and calls for action. And I think that is an interesting, almost a visual representation of what consultation could look like, where it might seem like there are elements in conflict with one another um, or in disagreement with one another. To me, I see it as a move towards truth. And of course, you know, it would have been probably better to have a true spirit of consultation where the people who are in charge of this of this sculpture are in consultation with community members to understand that this thing, this object is harmful and it is communicating something that is violent and discriminatory. But the response, I think, is a reflection of sort of this power of, of, mm-hmm. of including many voices. So you've kind of touched on this earlier about the role of the artist, but one of the pieces that I think has been lacking in this conversation about Confederate and colonial monuments is information about the artists themselves. We don't really know much about them or their position on the subject, which tells me that these Confederate monuments were really crafted based on skill and using references to symbols that were prominent in that era. But as an artist myself, I feel very strongly about this idea of coherence, conveying my truth, my identity, my perspective through my art. So looking into the future, what aspects of our identity do you believe we should be drawing on as artists? And what point of views we should be expressing and questions we should be asking as artists when designing and constructing memorials as public forms of art? The power of the artist in my, from my perspective, is the ability to convey things that are unseeable and unexplainable, which is, in my opinion, a direct reflection of our, of our spiritual capacity. Similarly to how the idea of God is really unknowable, the nature of the soul is really unknowable. You know, there are these, these things that are incredibly spiritual in essence that carry these qualities that artists are somehow able to communicate in in these very sort of mysterious ways. And I think it's, we are better off when we allow them to do that. A lot of the monuments that we see today and the ones that are being contested are ones that really don't carry that spirit. They're, you know, equestrian statues of some general on a horse that, you know, is conveying power or they are, you know, it's like just a figure of a man standing somewhere and that man stood for violence and death and, you know, you know, all the other negative things that our history holds with it. When we allow for artists to express what we cannot explain, what we cannot convey, then we're able to see things in a light that is incredibly distinct and unique. Um, And that's where monuments and public art can be truly powerful is when we allow artists to use those distinct talents that they have in communicating histories that are incredibly complicated in 
in the way that they carried out, but also in the way that we remember them and understand them today. So just to expand on on this question and take it one step further, I want to share a behind-spied perspective about the role of art and artists in the faith. Abdu'l-Baha talks about how all art is a gift of the Holy Spirit. All these gifts are fulfilling their highest purpose when showing forth the praise of God. There is something really special about creating art as artists that shows praise and gratitude and memorializes the spirit of the creator being God. But there is so much fragmentation in the world when it comes to faith in art. Do you believe there is space for this duality in the future of public art and memorialization? Absolutely. The the tricky thing comes when it is about conveying a singular perspective. But when when the intention is to convey the vastness of the mystery and the unknown and the and the way that we are connected through that experience, then I think it sort of strikes this very beautiful balance. So if a monument can provide a space for reflection or a space for prayer, you know, a moment of stillness, then we're we are welcome to approach it through a range of means and a range of perspectives. And it's not imposing one particular view or approach. And even, I mean, even in like a Baha'i setting and context, we know that prayer and meditation and communion with the divine looks different for every single person. And so it's important to understand that even if we are approaching this kind of a thing from a spiritual perspective, it has to have the flexibility to allow room for every single person. You know, if it's a monument or a sculpture, you know, whatever it is, that is so set from one perspective, then we are really limiting the audience and we are really limiting the experience and the message of what that thing is. But if we are inviting in viewers who are reflecting because they feel very close to an issue or we're inviting them because they are trying to learn about something or we're inviting them because they don't know what it is or we're inviting people in who just want to take in the spirit of something you know i think that is a much more beautiful result than um and a much uh more effective way of creating spaces of beauty and of healing Before we conclude this episode and bring this series of the exploration of monuments to a close, I'd love to take a moment to reflect on other guiding principles which the Baha'i teachings can offer us as individuals, members of communities and institutions when creating monuments in the future. Throughout this series, we've spoken a lot about the principles of justice and the investigation of truth and how this can be reflected in monuments and memorializations in the future. The concept of beauty is a universal concept and one that is central to the Baha'i faith, as you mentioned, the beauty of, of the shrines and the gardens just uh, just earlier. Um, it's central to the Baha'i faith physically and metaphorically. It is said that beauty can be recognized within humanity's progress towards peace. Abdu'l-Baha writes that when diverse shades of thought temperament and character are brought together, the beauty and glory of human perfection will be revealed and made manifest. 
So can you share how beauty, as is expressed through the unification of ideas, can be brought into a space of monuments in the future? We know that uh, attraction to beauty is a quality of the soul, which is something that is very powerful. So we know that beauty is something that we, that essentially that we need. So we need to be in spaces of beauty. But I think what is, what is so powerful about beauty is that it's a quality that is, that is very difficult to describe and to boil down, but it is a quality that is also very readily identifiable. And it, it, it almost is like this instinctual knowledge that we all hold within ourselves, this knowledge of beauty. And so when our communities are able to embrace this importance of beauty and present it and present it in a way that is widely accessible, we are feeding the spiritual needs of our neighbors and of ourselves. And that's where like the power of monuments and public art really lies. Now, the other thing about beauty, though, is that beauty can often be, I would say, misunderstood as something that is frivolous or something that is merely surface. When in reality, you know, um, in the in the Baha'i writings, there's a quote that says, the best beloved of all things in my sight is justice. And what I think is interesting about that quote is this word of sight, where from the divine perspective, justice is something that can be manifested through the senses, through the experience of the senses. And so if, if we are experiencing a beauty that is not just, then there is, you know, then it is something that is lacking. But if our beauty integrates justice, then it is a divine beauty. Then it's a, a beauty that is a reflection of these these spiritual qualities that we are so drawn to. And it's the it's the beauty that our soul is drawn to. Um, and I think, you know, when we're considering creating beauty, it's important also to consider how that beauty might be a vehicle for justice. There's another quote um, in the Baha'i writings that says, the purpose of, of justice is the appearance of unity amongst men. Um, and I learned recently that this word appearance that is in the English translation of the quote, um, you know, of course, this word can mean multiple things. It could mean the mere image of something, or it can mean the like revealing of something. And in the original writing, the word that is used where appearance is, is the word that's, the word that's used for the rising of the sun. And so, th- again, it's something that is very, it's like, going back to this notion of like instinct and nature and inevitability and, um, you know, cosmic forces, the purpose of justice is the appearance of unity. So it is this sort of cosmic force of justice bringing forth unity. And I think, again, it's like, if there is a connection between beauty and justice, then there is a connection between beauty and unity. And when we allow ourselves to kind of go there and to bring beauty into the world and create a beauty that feeds our souls and feel feeds our spiritual needs, then we're part of this process of creating unity. On that topic of unity, another concept that is very critical in the Baha'i writings and the Baha'i teachings is the concept of unity in diversity, which is very closely linked to the concept of beauty, as you just mentioned in the Baha'i writings. So Abdu'l-Baha talks about the garden which is pleasing to the eye and which makes the hot glad is the garden in which are growing side by side flowers of every hue, form, and perfume. And the joyous contrast of color is what makes for charm and beauty. 
How can this principle of unity and diversity uh, be promoted through a monument? Mm-hmm. So we, of course, we know that when we speak of unity, it is not uniformity. So unity, establishing unity is not sameness, but establishing unity is creating the conditions where there can be so much variety and it is richness uh, like acquired through the variety that, that, you know, and this sort of love of the diversity that we experience that creates a stronger sense of unity even. Um, In the context of a monument, you know, again, it goes back to, I think, the voices that are part of this conversation, both the voices that are creating something and the voices that are experiencing something. Because if you're, if the intention is to, uh, you know, convey a history or to convey a feeling, well, we know that history is multidimensional and complicated and our understanding of it is constantly changing. And we know that our communities are also various and, you know, in so many different ways. And we want to, you know, we hope that we want to embrace that so it's important for monuments to also bring in all of these different kinds of people and all of these different kinds of voices. Um, and I'd even be curious to see like, you know, monuments to single individuals and events that, that present them from different perspectives, because, you know, who said that a monument to an event has to be a single thing who said, like, you know, even you know, the way that we conceive of all these objects, like it's so arbitrary, but we, absolutely have not only the opportunity to, but I think a duty to reimagine how we um, understand the purpose of memory. So last but not least, the uh, final quality or uh, teaching that I could think of that would apply to this conversation was the attribute of nobility. Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i Faith, says, Noble have I created thee, yet thou hast abased thyself. Rise then unto that for which thou wast created. How how do you believe artists and communities and individuals can um, uplift this this teaching of nobility and make it visible through monuments and memorialization and public art in general? This quote that you just read, Baha'u'llah says, Noble have I created thee. It's a statement of inherent nobility, not earned or learned nobility, which is very powerful. So no matter what you do, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, you are noble and you are worthy. Um, and art for a long time has not reflected this quality. For a long time, art has been a way of displaying power and dominance. It has been a tool of the wealthy and a tool of those in power to reinforce that power. But we have an opportunity now as our understanding shift and as the conditions of our society shift to use art in a way that is completely new. How special would it be if people who do not normally see themselves reflected in art get to do that? And that's a it's a powerful message and a powerful image. You know, I think we I think we absolutely underestimate the power of a visual culture in shaping how we see ourselves and how we see the realities of our society. You know, we know that that representation is important, but I don't think we often put it into practice. And so what is so powerful about this moment and about reimagining and reshaping monuments and how we memorialize and how we we treat memory is that we have an opportunity to 
insist on the nobility of others in a way that we never have before. Now I want to open it up to you. Are there any other Baha'i principles or teachings that you believe would be helpful as we move into memorialization through public art forms in the future? I, I mean, I think just going back to, this is a little bit beauty adjacent, but another thing that kind of came to my mind is this relationship between pleasure, pain, and potential. And how, and like the sort of the, the relationship between these qualities and monuments, because a lot of times I think our monuments are really monuments to pain where we're memorializing war, we're memorializing tragedy, we're memorializing death, as opposed to looking at, as you kind of mentioned, nobility and potential. And, you know, there's this, there's this balance that's often talked about of, of crisis and victory in the in the history of the Baha'i faith and the history of, of all the world religions, where in, you know, after moments of, of deep and potent crisis, there are these victories that then emerge. And I think that it, it, that is such a beautiful notion. And I really wish that more monuments would look at that. And, and this is such an interesting concept to me because it doesn't ignore the reality of the crisis. It doesn't pretend like the crisis didn't occur. But it also recognizes that through suffering and through hardship, we're able to unlock potentials that we might not otherwise gain access to. There, there, there is a lot of a lot of beauty and a lot of incredible things that have happened out of pain and suffering. Not that that justifies any of it, but that it, it in a way that it demonstrates resilience and it demonstrates. Um, perseverance. And it shows how, despite the efforts of these kind of evil forces, the the reality of our, of our spiritual nobility, of, of our limitless potential is undeniable. Um, despite these, despite these sometimes really evil, truly, truly evil forces, you know, that we have the fortitude, we have the steadfastness and the strength to face all of that horror and hardship and still create beauty, create community, um, act in ways of deep love and compassion. Um, and I would love to see monuments that that reflect that. Anissa, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you today. I think what you've just shared is such a beautiful way to bring this episode and this full pot series to a close. Uh, I'm really grateful for what you've added to this ongoing conversation and for really inspiring us with your insights, reflections, and experiences. Thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. And I, I also learned so much both from you and from the other individuals who participated in this series. So thanks to, to all of you. Thanks so much for listening to Cloud9. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to check out BahaiTeachings.org, where you can find more Baha'i-inspired podcasts, videos, and articles. <laughs>